Welcome to the EQ4 podcast with me, Deborah McPhillamy. In this podcast, we talk about developing emotional intelligence as well as learning about social intelligence, how to handle your emotions in your relationships, in business, and in your life in general. I also talk to other experts in the field and I'll give you some tools, tips, and techniques to help you to be more EQ. Hi, and welcome back, everybody, to the Daily EQ Show, where I speak to empowering people with empowering stories, people who, just like you, are struggling through life and who either are still struggling or who have overcome certain situations. So I'm really excited because I haven't spoken to anybody in America for a long time. So Jonas and Galton, welcome to the show all the way from Missouri. Thank you, Deborah. It's a long <laughs> trip, but I'm glad I made it. <laughs> Are your arms, what was that old jog, the yeah, joke? Are right. your arms tired from flying? <laughs> <Exhausted>. <laughs> it's so good to hear the Amer- American accent again. I just love different accents. We were talking about that earlier on, and I haven't, um, I haven't connected with anybody from the USA, and I love the USA, so it's, it's really good. To have you. That's good. We're we're after we're having trouble finding people in the USA who love the USA. So it's good to hear. That. <laughs> I think it's always that thing about you know greener pastures, or I think it's the curiosity, or the you know like you were saying before we started that you love the Scottish accent. I was talking to a lady the other day actually from Wales. And before I didn't like the Welsh accent for some other reason, but I was so, I just couldn't stop listening to her and thinking, oh my gosh, you just sound so beautiful. I'm loving the accent. I think it's because we're hungry for variety and change at the moment that I think accents is somehow giving us something different from our everyday life that we're having at the moment. I think that's a good point. In other words, where we all feel this sense of being trapped a bit. Yeah. And, uh, you know, people talk about Zoom fatigue, but we should be so grateful that we have this tool yeah. because we can connect in ways. I mean, here we are talking across, so uh, what, six time zones. I know and, it's amazing. Uh, it's like we're, we're face to face. So what time is it there, by the way? It is morning here. It is eight twelve. Okay. Not too bad. It's, it's 10, 12 minutes past two in the afternoon. Yeah. So it's not too bad. <laughs> I have to say, when you um, mentioned that you were a Jewish rabbi, so my dad, I grew up in, a ch- in the church. Um, my dad is a pastor, has been all his life. He's 82 this year, this month, in fact. Um, so I've always grown up in the church. But there was something about, and I know we're not talking about faith right now, but I, I do want to just put it out there, is that there was always something about the Jewish faith for me that was, I always find really intriguing. Um, it was always very revered. I always saw it as very calm, um, knowing. I, I can't explain it. There's something about whenever I've met a Jewish person in the Jewish faith that I've always had this incredible sense of calmness <laughs> descend on me. I don't know why. I can't explain it. But you said that you and an Orthodox rabbi, and this is so have you always been in you've obviously grown up in the Jewish faith well I grew up Jewish but uh, you know Jewish is a is a is a it's a conundrum and and the world's been spending a long time trying to figure it out you can be Jewish without being religious yeah and most Jews are Um, it is an ethnicity it is a race Um, it's more than that because you can convert in some have said it's really a family Okay. But the, the, I grew up without any religious 
knowledge or training or mm. really reference points whatsoever. And it was uh, when I graduated college, I, I went uh, hitchhiking cross country and then backpacking across Europe. And I ended up in Israel. I was on my yes. way to Africa and Asia and Australia. And uh, I was astonished to discover this rich culture of um, you know, deep thought and, and connection and community. Yeah. And it changed the course of my life. I spent nine years in Israel and um, reframed my entire worldview hmm. and subsequently committed myself to, uh, to teaching young people the yeah. values and the intellectual discipline that I had found so uh, intriguing and so formative in, in my life. Uh, and the values are not just for Jews. The values are for, you know, I mean, Christianity comes out of Judaism, Islam comes out of Judaism, and there are even connections yeah. between Judaism and uh, and the Eastern religions and philosophies. So, yeah. uh, and I think you said the word there, community, because I always remembered that, you know, when I did meet Jewish people or I learned a little bit about their traditions and, you know, the stuff they did, I was always like, wow, they have this deep sense of community you know they, they have this incredible community and and one of the, my assistants that work with me now she's a, a Jewish lady and she's always talking about the Jewish community and I was like wow I've forgotten all about this incredible community and and so so to me that's what it represents so it was interesting that you you, you said that even yourself how you found that community you know when you went to Israel yeah yeah and of course like any family we have our our yeah. sibling rivalries and our family squabbles and uh, you know that's that's part of life too yeah amazing so okay so but we're going to be talking about something different today I thought that was quite interesting though is that um about this whole thing of you know that we all have things stuff events that happen to us immaterial of age and how that leaves us feeling and how we deal with it and do we ever get to the point where we have dealt with it completely and you were mentioning that that something happened to you when you were 10 years old so take us back to that time and tell us a little bit about what that is yeah so I was 10 years old uh and my my mother disappeared from my life uh I woke up in the middle of the night heard yeah. sounds outside my 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 room went out into the hallway and through the front window, I saw flashing lights of an ambulance mm. and heard commotion going on. My father saw me, told me to go back to bed. And when I woke up in the morning, my mother was gone. Wow. She had contracted a rare blood disease called disseminated intravascular coagulation. Wow. Um, she was the sixth case is 1971 she was the sixth case at ucla medical center and the first five had all died without within weeks mm. there was no treatment no understanding of the disease and every doctor said she's gone there's nothing we can do so she had died from it she well one doctor refused to give up Okay. You know, my, my father had lost his first wife to cancer. Mm. Um, you know, I was 10 years old. I, you know, my brain interpreted her disappearance as abandonment. Mm. And one doctor, his name was Larry Johnson. He was a senior epidemiologist. And he told his colleagues he wasn't going to let a 40-year-old woman die without putting up a fight. Yeah. 
They told him, you're wasting your time. He didn't care. Yeah. He tried experimental antibiotics. He ordered massive blood transfusions. And from the shock of the disease, my mother's kidneys shut down, fluids Ooh. built up in her body. She was allowed two teaspoons of ice a day. She developed thrush like a little baby and her veins collapsed like an octogenarian. And um, yeah, she couldn't speak. Mm. She was hallucinating from the, from the drugs they gave her. Gosh. But Larry Johnson never gave up. Because he wasn't worried about what his colleagues thought. He was yeah. worried about the consequences of not doing everything in his power to save a life. Mm. So last summer, my mother turned 92 years old. So her disappearing suddenly from your life was her being whisked away to hospital. Yeah, it was two months. Gosh. And I remember virtually nothing. Yeah. I remember the night she disappeared. I remember virtually nothing throughout the entire experience. Mm. You know, it took her really a, a year to really get back to, to full strength, to, to normal. Mm. But for me, the recovery was a lot longer. Yeah. Because, you know, at that age, we're fragile. You are. And so how did you, because did your dad actually, I mean, your dad just saying to you, go back to bed, wasn't really helpful because we think as parents, well, you know what, they don't understand. They don't know what's going on. So just go back to bed. So do you think that, did he explain it? So, so in my mind, I'm trying to imagine as a 10 year old, there was that shock waking up in the morning well where was mom was there any explanation or was it just a case of well you know you just get on with your day well I, I think that in the moment sending me back to bed was made the sensible thing to do yeah um but you know my father was a good man but he you know he was what we in america call the greatest generation you know he grew up in the depression yeah you know he he saw his father at dinner time Mm. for years because through the depression my father my grandfather had a business yeah. but he would leave early in the morning he was gone when my father woke up in the morning as a boy he came home in the evening they sat down for supper they ate my father went to bed and that was seven days a week that for was years it, yeah. and so you know and then he, he was he was he was in world war ii he went to college on the gi bill and his his whole world view was about security yeah. and responsibility and he was a successful businessman, but he wasn't, he wasn't a communicative person. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, certainly he did the best he could. But back then we didn't have counseling and we didn't have school yeah. psychologists. And, and, you know, I was kind of left to figure things out on my own, mm, mm. which I was not equipped to do. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, it's, this is sort of a line that, that we can get into more as we go, but you know, it would be easy for me. And the interesting thing is, and it's kind of sad, my mother to this day blames herself. Oh, to this day. To this but day. What does she blame herself for? Is she blaming herself because of the effect it had on you? Yes. Okay, yes. so what effect did it have on you? So, so take us right. in mind of how that did affect you. Yeah, so again, I, I remember virtually nothing. And, you know, we didn't have the term PTSD back then. Yeah. But I think that that's 
<laughs> that's the way to describe it. Yeah. Uh, and again, my mother tells me that before this, I was a very self-assured, outgoing, vivacious, uh, mm -hmm. even precocious boy. And after that, I became withdrawn and and insecure and uh, you know very 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 skittish and um, it, it it just um, it was it was traumatic. Yeah. And you know again I, I I perceived it as abandonment. Yeah. And so for for years, yeah, I I really had no self confidence. Um, very a lot of trouble making friends mm. and of course children in that state are they attract bullies yeah because bullies prey on the weak and the vulnerable vulnerable yeah and when i was in eighth grade i you know spent most of eighth grade that i can remember contemplating suicide every day oh. and it was really only when i got to college that i started to come out of that mm. to some degree. I, I, my first quarter in college, I took philosophy and I uh, studied Jean-Paul Sartre. I don't agree with Sartre on almost anything, but he has a premise, a classic existential line that he, that he is responsible for, that existence precedes essence. Hmm. Let me think about that for a second. Yeah, it's, I mean, he's, you know, this is, this is a whole... Yeah, this is a whole college <laughs> curriculum um, encapsulated yeah. in three words. The idea is first we are. Yeah. And then we are who we are. Yeah. And that we have a certain amount of control. Yeah. We're defining ourselves. Now, of course, it's not that simple, but it was a message that resonated with me mm. because I was very much aware that I was, you know, introverted and, and insecure and, and here is a, a great figure of, of historical thought yeah. telling me that I'm not fated to be this way. Yeah. I'm not trapped in, in this identity of this person I really didn't like very much. It must have been really freeing for you. Yeah. And again, it's, it's not that simple, but yeah. you know, it's, it's, it, 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 it did it did produce a light at the end of the tunnel. It gave me a sense mm, of direction and purpose <laughs> and yeah. hope. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and the other thing was that going into, I mean, I went away um, from home for college and I did it very intentionally. I yeah. even changed my name, the name I used, because I really wanted to have a fresh start. Mm. And, you know, I developed, for, you know, I, wasn't, I wasn't identified by people who had known me for years mm. and already had their preconceptions about who I was. And so I was able to reinvent myself yeah. to a large degree. And we were, talk, we were talking earlier about community, you know, in the college dormitories, we were community. Community. And I was able to develop those relationships. And, and, yeah. and that I think is so critical. And again, going back to being in COVID and being isolated, mm. um, Isolation is a terrible thing. I mean, my mother is living in an uh, independent facility for, for older people. And one of her neighbors, um, you know, they were very protective. They didn't want anybody getting sick. Yeah. So they didn't let family come in. They didn't let them go out. And this, this fellow became so isolated, he yeah. jumped off his balcony. <gasps> oh. 
So, you know, they're taking care of their physical health yeah. at the cost of their emotional health. And it's that isolation yeah. that makes it so much more difficult to get through these things. And also, would you say like isolation, not just because like when you're talking about physical isolation, right, we, we have that need for connection as human beings, not just in Zoom, we have the need for connection in person. We need the connection to hug somebody, to hear somebody, to see somebody, to smell somebody. But it's also that isolation of when you were talking about, um, you know, what you felt, you felt all those feelings, feeling abandoned and all of that. I think often we feel isolated in that because we think, why am I feeling this way? Is there anyone else that's feeling this way? And and I mean, I can imagine as, as a 10-year-old, the reason that you change so much your personality is because your world was rocked, you know, because for children, everything is about safety, um, habits, routine, same people, same day, there they are. And suddenly that is ripped out underneath you and suddenly your world is no longer safe it's, it's now unsafe because you've now tapped into wait I don't have any control over this world my mother was here the one day and the next day she's gone so you suddenly have that intense awareness that you can't always control your environment so I can imagine all the people around you so I can imagine even feeling isolated in what you were feeling and what you were going through because sometimes no one else gets it exactly and in some ways it, it was even worse than had she died because there was no closure there was no moving forward there was just this state of uncertainty and yeah. lack of understanding and you know not you know who what peers at that age are really going to understand yeah what yeah. i'm going through mm. um you know, I'm not even, I don't even know if my teachers, I don't think my teachers really understood. I don't remember any teachers reaching out to me, which, you know, is, is unfortunate because that's part of the job of being a teacher is not just yeah. communicating information, but actually helping young people through yeah. uh, their, you know, the difficulties of life. So what uh, age did you eventually, what point did you get to where you eventually realized how much that event affected your life because as you said you weren't really aware of it but so there must have been at some point where you were like oh my gosh that is what had such a profound effect on me and my life when what was that moment for you that's a really interesting question and and I don't think I was it was until I was in my 30s really that I really um put it together I I um you know I do a lot of writing yeah. And at one point it occurred to me that I I should write I should write about this. Mm. And so I asked my mother for the details cuz we'd never really talked about it in depth. Wow. And and I wrote it up in in a, in an essay which is on my website. Um but in the course of writing the story I began yeah. to reflect upon mm. the impact that it had on me. Yeah. And it and it really helped me to you know have a have a, a greater degree of self-awareness. Yeah. Of why I had you know had to go through these struggles mm. when I was younger without really understanding where it all came from. Mm. 
And is it important for you to know where, where it came from? Because I know some people, they, they just go, oh, we'll just sweep it under the rug. I mean, I know I'm that kind of person like you. I like to know where it came from so that I know what to do about it. So was that important for you to know? Because was there certain actions or behavior in your 30s and where you suddenly connected the dots and went, Oh, that's why I react in that way, or that's how why I feel in that way. Was it was it like a connecting the dots for you, and was that important for you? Did it did it really help you? I think so, and, I, and I'm not sure that it was so much on a conscious level. Yeah, to some degree, perhaps. But I think we all, you know, you know, movies today. There's so many of these. Um, prequels or, or origin stories they're very yeah. big you know how did how did spider-man become spider-man how did batman <laughs> become batman <laughs> how did the joker become the joker no. and it, i think i think they're successful stories because a lot of a lot of the stories in our lives we come in the middle as you meet mm. somebody in the middle of life you enter you move to a community you're dropped yeah. in right and we as as human beings we 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 need, we need a sense of continuity in our mm. lives it's part of understanding who we are where we are now the danger is we can become so obsessed yeah with the backstory that we end up sort of trapped in the past that's true and there you know i think today there is there's so much this entitlement culture this victim culture mm. you know what happened when I was young, what happened to my parents, what happened to my grandparents, my great-grandparents, what happened hundreds of years ago. Yeah. It's important to understand the historical flow. But not to but get stuck there. Not to get trapped in that. Yeah, yeah. Because then you can't move forward. Mm. And, you know, the, the future always starts right now. Mm. And, you know, coming from South Africa, one of the extraordinary figures of our time is Nelson Mandela. Yeah. And what made him so extraordinary, a lot of things made him extraordinary, but when he became president, mm. his whole approach was we're not going to try to correct or justify or yeah. even out the past. Yeah. We are going to try to move forward. Yeah. And gosh, we need more of that. <laughs> We do. And I think for me, why I was such a remarkable man as well is that it was that whole sense of forgiveness, you know, and, and I think I was just chatting to somebody earlier on about forgiveness. And I think a lot of people struggle with forgiveness because they always think it's about, you know, we're going to let go of um, or, or it's going to make it irrelevant about what happened to us. And it's not, it's, it's merely letting go of that which happened, letting go of being attached to that event. And, and I've said this before, and I'll say it again, because it's, it's such a brilliant description where Oprah says her definition of forgiveness is letting go of the hope that the past could have been different. Because until you have that letting go, you can't move forward, you get stuck, you're constantly going back and you think that's who you are. No, that happened to you that doesn't make you who you are that doesn't make your life any less significant less valuable that happened what can you learn from it oh i can learn that and then move forward yeah yeah and i mean think about people it was a really interesting study 
um, they they studied people who won large lotteries. Yeah. And they studied people together with that group. They studied people who had become um, paralyzed. Yeah. And they evaluated them at the time of this event. I mean, they're both, you know, they're both huge events. Yeah. And then they found that six months later, both groups had returned to the same emotional, psychological plateau where they had been before the event. You know, you think, wow, if I win the lottery, it's going to change my life. Yeah. <laughs> Probably not. <laughs> what's, what's more extraordinary, I mean, you, you think, gosh, I lose the, the use of my legs. My life's over. Apparently not. That's so interesting because that, that is a positive if you think about it, because somebody who's lost the, the use of their legs could get stuck in that poor me. Oh my goodness, my life has ended. But that is that is such an interesting study. Yeah. And and, and when you look, I mean, I have a, a good friend, uh, his name is John Register. He was an Olympian. And a freak accident, he lost his legs during a race. He came down wrong, damaged the leg. And, uh, you know, he talks about this now. Now he's a Paralympian. Wow. And, you know, he's someone who has taken this disability, incorporated it into who he is and what he does, and used it to inspire others. Amazing. You know, we, we can't affect, we can't, we have no control over the things that happen to us. Mm. And, of course, I am a different person from the person I would have been had my mother not disappeared from my life for two months when I was 10 years old. Do you see the gift in that? Do you think that it has helped you to, do you think it had anything to do with who you became, what you do? Do you, I think do you so. see the gift in it? I think so. And, and of course, you know, it's, you can always speculate, what would life have been like if not? But yeah. where's that going to get me? As you say, <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> hoping for a different past is not going to be a useful uh, uh, exercise, but you know that sense of insecurity, that sense of loss, that sense of aloneness. Mm. I mean, I remember, you know, I I, I could have gone into my father's construction business. Mm. I could have gone into my grandfather's law firm. Yeah, believe me, my parents were <laughs> eager me for me to do one or the other, yeah. <laughs> and I was always driven by this sense that. I want to do something profoundly meaningful with my life. I didn't know what that was. I didn't know what that looked like. Yeah. To a large degree, that's what sent me traveling. It's what drove me to study literature instead of something more practical. Yeah. And I think it's ultimately what, um, what connected me with the tradition of my ancestors and my people. Yeah, uh, I found a sense of uh, purpose, a sense of continuity, uh, yeah. a sense of mission. And it was, you know, it, I was inspired by the, by the potential that I discovered to lead a life of meaning, a life of purpose. Yeah. And yeah. I taught high school for 23 years because I wanted to 
help young people find their way in life. And, you know, many of them were dealing with their own types of traumas. And and now I try to take the universal lessons of of Judaism and and apply them to a secular audience, a wider audience. You know, those principles of meaning and purpose and happiness and community and values and ethics. Yeah. Uh, You know, we, we are all struggling today. The world's gotten to be a very complicated place when it should be, it should be paradise. I mean, we have so much wealth. We have so much technology. We have so many comforts. The average person today is living like a king. You're right. Centuries ago. Yeah. And yet what do we do? We bicker, we fight, we fetch, we complain. We want more stuff. <laughs> we bemoan our right. But George Carlin said, a, a house is a place where you keep your stuff while you're out buying more stuff. <laughs> That's so true, though. And I think, you know, you know, when you find meaning and when you find purpose in your life, and I think this is always a big conversation because a lot of people that I speak to, they're like, what's my purpose? I don't know what's my purpose. I wonder, and, and it's almost like they're making themselves suffer in a way because they they feel like, you know, um, I remember in Neil Donald Walsh um, saying that there's people that think that, you know, there's this big board in the sky where God says, you know, Deborah McPhillamy, this is your purpose. And we're almost like all waiting for that message to come down from heaven and strike us and go, bam, there's your purpose. But your purpose really could be what you make it. And when you were talking about meaning, it, it reminded me of one of the books that changed my life forever was that of Viktor Frankl. You know, he's man's search for meaning and how we can find meaning in every day, how we can find our purpose by becoming the best parent, the best person, an example, helping the man on the street. Because I think that, you know, instead of searching for this massive big purpose thing, we can give our life meaning. We can give ourselves a purpose. It doesn't have to be this huge, massive thing. I mean, would you agree? Oh, no doubt about it. And, you know, you mentioning Viktor Frankl. It's so powerful because yeah. the context in which he talks about this is who were the people who made it through the death camps in the home? Yeah. The people who found purpose in helping others. Yeah. Right. The people who said they, they hunkered in and I'm going I'm to ride this out. I'm going to look out for myself. Those were the people who made it. Yeah. So people who looked for opportunities to help others and their darkest time when they had nothing to give, mm. they found that giving is what saved them. And, and I, I really think of this because you know, Simon Sinek talks about how he's interviewed Navy SEALs. Yeah. And it's exactly the same thing. Is who are the ones who make it through the training? It's not the big tough ones who think they can do it all on their own. It's the <laughs> ones who, when they're absolutely exhausted and miserable and shivering, turn to the person next to them and say, you know, what can I do for you? How can I help you? Yeah. That's yeah. what you know, it's again, it's that connection to other people that mm. gives us the strength to get through the most difficult times and not just get through them, but come out stronger on the other side. Yeah. And you know, it's so interesting. Um, because my husband, um, and I think people don't, don't necessarily not want to help other people, but they're so stuck in fear and protecting themselves. There's various reasons why, you know, people have these boundaries and these walls up and they make it about them because it could be a place of fear. And, and the reason I mentioned my husband is that um, 
So we did um, a fire walking instructor training together, a long story, but it, it was a brilliant experience. But we did a lot more than that. And the one thing was that you said the big burly guys, the, the ego guys, they were the ones that burnt their feet. Not the people that went, you know what, I'm going to do this. I'm going to put set my mind to it and I'm going to do it because you're focusing on the other side. So that was, to me was always interesting. It was always the tough ones that burnt their feet. But the second thing was that we did a, a trust fall. One of the exercises was a trust fall. And that was the most profound for myself as well as for my husband. And mine was that I had been hurt so many times that I had very few people that I could trust up until then. And looking back at these people going, oh my goodness, are they going to catch me? You know, am I going to? And then they did. And that for me was a huge breakthrough. And I was like, wow, I can put my trust in other people. But what my husband said, his moment for him was where he suddenly had this breakthrough and went, wait, life is about more than protecting me. Because he had got to that point of always protecting himself because he'd been hurt so many times and had horrible near-death experiences and accidents that he was very fearful. He was like, oh, protect, protect, protect. And that mind shift where he went, wait, I'm going to help them. I want to catch them. I want to make sure that they don't fall. For him, he said that profoundly changed his life. And I mean, I've seen the evidence of that because he's never been the same since. Yeah. So I think there's, there is that inherentness in us that we do want to be of service we do want to help people we do want to be significant we want to make the world a better place but we don't always know where to start and sometimes we don't even realize that we have protected ourselves with all these walls of safety you know so yeah I mean that that, that was such an interesting point where you said that um, because I do think inherently we want to help yeah yeah there's you know it's interesting uh, this is a longer conversation uh, yeah. for another time but in in biblical hebrew there are eight words that translate as happiness or joy or, or some synonym yeah. and one of those words is is chedva which comes from the word chad which means one achieving oneness being connected and part oh. of something outside oneself, yeah. whether it's a relationship like a marriage, um, a community, a business. I mean, when you, when you want to know, how do you make a successful business? Have your people feel like they're partners yeah. rather than assets. Mm. Have you know, to empower another person. Um, means that we're part of the same team. Yeah, you know the, the best bosses are the ones who don't try to do everything themselves, who don't watch over people's shoulders, mm. uh, who don't look for opportunities to criticize, yeah. but who build people up, who allow people independence, who let go mm. in order to create a more connected and more cohesive community. Yeah, and partnership is all about people with differences. I mean, they say opposites attract, and it's true. Yeah, because I want someone who's not doing who's not doing everything like me and just like me. I want somebody who compliments me. Mm. We together form a whole, and I feel completion. You know, my my wife was once a uh, at one point in her life was a 
a violinist and a, you know, a concert violinist. And, you know, the, the symphony is such a beautiful allegory yeah. for life because you have different people playing different instruments and different notes mm. and it all comes together so beautiful. in a harmonic unity. Yeah. Can you imagine having all violins playing all the same notes? <laughs> <It's> very boring. <laughs> very boring. <laughs> yeah, and, and harmony means that sometimes I, I support you. Yeah. I like sports illustrations too. In basketball and hockey, they don't just count the, the goals or the baskets or the points. They count the assists. Ah. If I set you up so you score, yeah. Okay, you got the glory, but you couldn't have gotten it without me. I love that. You know, you know what my mom always used to say, which was something not kind of in line with it, but she she always used to say, like a husband and wife, um, instead of um, always there's you you work in conjunction. Um, you know, the male might be the head because obviously in a lot of households, the male is the head and then she'd go, but I am the neck and without the neck, the head cannot turn. <laughs> yeah. And, and you know, so many of our problems come from this feeling that if I'm not visible, yeah, if I'm not in the front, if I'm not in the limelight, then I'm not valuable. Mm. But, you know, there's an expression, you know, the power behind the throne. Yeah. Very often, the people who are most powerful, most influential, the people who are never seen. I love that. And I have to just take a breath there. And because that is such an important point for people to hear. I remember speaking to, I've got a quite a few people I work with and I've got a teacher that does my lesson plans for the training and the, the stuff that we do with kids we teach them emotional intelligence and she does the lesson plans but because I'm the front person the speaker the author she always used to feel like just in the background and, and not as important and significant and I remembered one day saying to her and I was crying as I was saying it because I was just just having this deep appreciation for her and I said to her have you ever heard the terminology that we stand on the shoulders? I'm getting emotional now. We stand on the shoulders of giants. My team are my giants because I can't do what I do without them. And, you know, and I, I needed her to know how important that was because, as you say, there's you think that you have to be the front person. No, you don't because the front person needs those shoulders to stand on it's the people that are going to help us to move forward so everybody has that purpose that place that significance that importance and we don't have to compare ourselves and think we have to be in a certain way to believe that and feel that yeah yeah and uh i can get uh, a little bit theological for just a moment Please? um you know the book of ruth yeah, is 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 an extraordinary, beautiful story, and it starts with tragedy. It's that Ruth was married to uh, the son of Naomi, who had two sons. And yeah, her sons both died, and the other daughter-in-law, which she sent back to her people, and Ruth said, "No, I'm coming with you," even though she was from a, a different people. And you know, a whole series of interesting events, but at the end, Ruth marries Boaz, and she has a child. And right at the end of the book, 
there's this line that has always intrigued me that all of the women said, a child is born to Naomi. Yeah. So, Wait a minute. What happened to Ruth? Yeah. <laughs> the book of Ruth, the story is about her. But Naomi lost everything. She lost her husband. She lost her sons. And Ruth, through Ruth, Naomi now has continuity. She has a family. She has a grandson, like a son. Yeah. A child is born to Naomi. Where is Ruth? Ruth just backed out of the picture. She let Naomi have the moment of joy, Mm. of not feeling that she's cut off from the future, not feeling that she's lost all her family. And and it's such a beautiful idea Mm. that Ruth backs out of her own story to allow Naomi to have that joy. That's just beautiful. And I think, so how do you bring this back to, um, because I know we're nearly out of time. So how do you bring this all back to your feelings of, you know, that event that happened to you where you felt betrayed, abandoned, shock, unsafe, insecure, then you moved on, went and found yourself, found your people, your community, your continuity with, the, you know, your, your, your culture, uh, which then led you to become a teacher, touch many lives. So how do you bind that all together in a way of kind of, I don't know what I'm trying to say, but how do you kind of bring it all back to that moment? Because that was clearly seemed like if looking back it was a bit of a defining moment of who you were then going to become and your purpose kind of unfolded from that would you say yeah and you know we can all deal with pain yeah i mean anybody who's been to the gym knows no pain no gain yeah (laughs) anybody who's ever learned a discipline you learned a musical instrument unpleasant (laughs) practice and practice and practice you learn a skill you learn a trade if you're in a relationship it takes work you're going to have rocky spells we understand that good things only come through struggle through difficulty what we can't handle is pointless pain Mm. when it seems unjust when it seems unfair when it seems to no good purpose yeah uh, you know, I, I, I get occasional migraine headaches yeah. and, you know, they're devastating. But part of what makes them devastating is not just the pain. It's the point of like, why is this happening? <laughs> what yeah. good can come out of this? So my experience now has a context. Mm. I understand things about myself. I understand things about human relationships. I can relate to people in ways that I might not be able to if I wouldn't yeah. have gone through this. I mean, I was, I was walking down the street one day in my neighborhood and, and, and a woman in the neighborhood that I know, um, not, you know, not a very close friend, just you know, I'm a good acquaintance is coming back. And I said, uh, how are you doing? And she just dissolved into tears. Um, she had been married to a, a fellow who had children from a previous marriage. Mm. And uh, she had been very happy and really close with these kids, the stepchildren that she was raising. And then, you know, there was a betrayal and there was abuse and, and uh, the, the marriage ended 
and her ex-husband prevented her from having any contact with his children. And it was absolutely devastating mm. to her. <clears throat> and, you know, and then she, and I said, gosh, that has to be so painful for you. Mm. And like her whole expression changed. She said, thank you. Everyone else is telling me, you know, get over it. <laughs> you know, all the platitudes that we reflexively tell yeah. people, um, which are generally not very helpful. She just needed somebody to validate what she was feeling. That's it. Yeah. It's not, you know, I don't need a PhD to do this. Rocket science, no. I, but, you know, it, it, was, it was just something that I had, yeah. I was a little more sensitive. Yeah. Perhaps because I had that own, my own history of mm -hmm. loss and betrayal and pain. Yeah. And, you know, I was grateful that in that moment, because, you know, I don't always get it right either. And you made a huge difference to her life because this morning I was watching one of Oprah's old interviews. You can tell I'm a big fan of Oprah. Um, and it, she's, she said something about for all the years and she interviewed something like 35,000 people or some crazy number. And she said every single interview at the end of it, people just wanted validation. Every single one from President Bush to Beyonce, all of them, everybody just wants to be seen to be heard, to be validated and saying, I see you, I see your pain, that's awful, it's horrible, I'm sorry you're going through that. So it's quite poignant that you have said exactly the same thing, that you know, now that experience has given you the opportunity to, and that changes somebody's life. I mean, I can just imagine, that's why she felt so touched, you because you were being kind. You know, you, you just reminded me of, of a very powerful experience I had uh, last time I was in Israel. Um, I was, I was going down to the Western wall, which is where we pray. It's the, it's the holiest site for us that we have access to. And there are a lot of people there, poor people mm. asking for donations. And as you walk down, I mean, they're literally every few feet. Yeah. And, you know, unless you happen to be an extremely well-to-do person, <laughs> there's a limit to how much. Yeah, you can yeah. give, and so you know, I've got a pocket full of change, and I, I hand it out. And eventually, I don't have anything left. And so, what do we do when we see people appealing to us that we're not in a position to help? We often don't make eye contact, right? This is a natural yeah, human, true. right? This is it's our natural. It's like a defense mechanism. Yeah, right? I, I don't want to be in this 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 uncomfortable position, mm. and. You know, and I've done it myself, but I remembered this time a teaching from Judaism that if a poor person asks for a donation, you can't help that person. A kind word is considered charity. And so I would make eye contact with these people and I would say, you know, God should help you in Hebrew. Sounds a little better in Hebrew, but, um, and it was remarkable. Yeah. Because their faces sort of relaxed. They gave a little nod. They just wanted to be seen. Yeah, just acknowledged. They want someone to, to right, validate their humanity. Yeah. And that's in some ways worth more than a few coins. 
Mm-hmm. And thank you so much for sharing that because what a wonderful way to end to remind people that just to be kind, it can just be that smile. It can just be that word, you know, just something, but just saying something, reaching out, you don't have to look away. You don't have to be embarrassed and, and just validate their humanity. I think that was a wonderful way of explaining that. So thank you so much for sharing your story, your insights. I can speak to you for hours, but I'm looking <laughs> at the clock and going, I, I have to end. So it was amazing. So where can people find you? And tell us about your book. You said you wrote a book. I could see a book of this. So show us your, your cover. And okay. there we go. It's called Grappling with the Gray. Wow. I love the handbook. Yeah. And it's, um, it's really, it's, it's a collection of short ethical scenarios and dilemmas with a brief guided discussion of not so much how to resolve them, but how to look at them from both sides. Mm. Until we can see both sides of an issue, we really aren't in a position yeah. to find a conclusion or a solution. And it's available on Amazon? Um, it is, but it's cheaper if you find it on my website. Again, sell an author's discount, although uh, <laughs> I, I only can sell it in the United States. Yeah. Um, and, um, you know, sometimes the, the pricing is a little bit uh, prohibitive elsewhere, but it's also available on Kindle. It's and uh, on my website, I have uh, all kinds of articles, videos, uh, interviews, um, very active on LinkedIn. So I encourage people to connect with me there. Yeah, and where's your website address? I will be copying all of this below on, on this video, but what is your website address called? So if you look on my, next to my picture there on the screen, my name is Jonas Goldson. So it's jonasengoldson.com, ah. Y-O-N-A-S-O-N-G-O-L-D-S-O-N. And, uh, and also I have a new podcast. Uh, with my partner who's a psychologist. We call it The Rabbi and the Shrink. Ah. <laughs> I love that. I'm going to look it up. I love podcasts. <laughs> The rabbi and the shrink. It sounds like it's about a joke that's about to stop. That's to right, right. But, uh, about... but we're talking about everyday ethics and you know, how to deal <laughs> with the complicated situations that we face in life. Excellent. That sounds fascinating. So thank you so much. I've loved meeting you. I've loved talking to you. Thank you for um, sharing your insights with us. And thank you for being of service to the world and humanity and helping the world to become a better place and helping people to feel like they belong, fit in, feel loved, validated, and accepted. Well, thank you for that. And thank you for inviting me to join you. It's been a pleasure. You're very welcome. And thank you for tuning in. And I will be back with another episode of speaking to somebody else who has an empowering or inspiring story. And if you need to reach out, remember just to look below, you will find the details of where you can contact myself. If you want to get hold of um, Jonathan, I'm going to put his details in there as well. So um, please do tune in next time. And that's all from me for now. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. Tune in next time to hear more about how you can be more EQ.